Hello, and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa, and I'm here to talk to everyday superheroes helping nonprofits using technology. Today, I'm joined by guest Sally Heaven. Sally, welcome to the show. Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me. So for listeners who are listening to you for the very first time, can you share a bit about who you are and what you do? Well, sure. Um, I am a nonprofit technology consultant. I am one half of a two-person company that's called Raise Heck. We work with nonprofits to help them choose and use the best technology to fit their mission and their needs. I'm really excited about this conversation because typically when I start working with nonprofits, they've already made that decision choice to say, yeah, Salesforce is the right platform for us. And now they're looking for someone to help them versus you are at the pre-stage. You're actually at the discovery point to help uh, learn you know, which CRM of which Salesforce only, you know, one of many, is the best choice. So I'm really curious to, to pick your brain today. Excited that you're here. Um, before we get too far into the details, though, I was curious to know, this is one of my favorite questions, is how did you begin to work with nonprofits? Oh, great question. I um, I started working with nonprofits in 1999. So I had been in school studying biology, but I wanted to work in LGBTQ rights and in the political movement to secure equal rights for gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer and questioning people. So what I did after I was done with biology schooling is I moved to Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States, and I specifically wanted to work at a political nonprofit. So moved here without a job, and I got an internship at the Human Rights Campaign, and that is where I spent the next seven years uh, working in politics. And I really I like nonprofits. I like that most of them are trying to solve problems and contribute to the greater good. So it's a really great community of people to work with. And then from there, how um, how did you decide to come up with a company called Raise Heck? And what does Raise Heck do? <laughs> great question. So after seven years at the nonprofit, at the Human Rights Campaign, I liked the software so much that I went to go work at the software company that provided our advocacy and fundraising software. It was called Get Active. And I ended up spending 13 years there. That company was acquired a couple of times. And a friend of mine who also worked uh, at the company, her name's Charlotte Cressy, she and I enjoyed working together. And we thought we'd like to combine our experience to help nonprofits make the best decisions about their technology. The, that's why we decided to start Raise Heck. We had seen over the years, there's been in the last two decades, a huge proliferation of software solutions. That's great because there's more to choose from, but it's also really confusing for nonprofits if they don't know everything that's out there. And they, a lot of them we thought needed help to figure out what was really right for their organizational size and missions. And I think that decision has been validated in the last three years that we've been raising heck. We talk to organizations all the time and they say they don't know what's out there and how to choose. And so that's what we're here to do. Have you noticed that nonprofit technology is more of a byproduct of a for-profit technology in the sense that a lot of focus of a lot of organizations producing software typically you know, focus on the, the for-profit market first and then maybe as a result of it to say, yeah, we could actually branch out maybe to the nonprofit space versus 
starting from the very get-go of saying, oh, this is going to be only for nonprofits from, from day one, and this is going to be our focus? I think that both of those things happen. So there's a lot of either for-profit software decides to expand into the nonprofit market or nonprofits start using for-profit software because it's a good fit for their mission. And then after a period of time, that company takes notice and decides that they'd like to invest in that for a variety of reasons. And I think Salesforce, like you mentioned, Alex is a good example um, of something that was originally designed mostly for for for-profit businesses and then nonprofits found great use in it and decided that they'd like to use it. And the uh, salesforce.org now it's called, um, you know, is, is building tools specifically for nonprofits. The compliment to that is true though. There are plenty of companies that make software specifically for nonprofits from the get-go and, you know, in a variety of either fundraising um, or advocacy or other kind of applications for it. So I want to explore those options a bit later, but um, wanted to know a bit more about Race Heck, uh, just because it's a very interesting, very catchy name. Is there any story behind the the, the naming of, of or the deciding of the name of Race Heck? <laughs> yeah, Race Heck is a name that has a few different layers. And when Charlotte and I were talking about starting a company, we thought of the name Raise Heck fairly early and we thought it would be our placeholder name until we thought of something better. And then over the months that we were planning the company, we decided we love the name. So first of all, Heck is a combination of both of our names. My last name, Heaven, starts with H-E and then Charlotte Cressy, her initials are C-K. So when you put that together, it spells Heck. And then when you put raise heck together, it's a fun play on words about activism and uh, raising a good kind of heck to make change. Charlotte and I both worked at nonprofit organizations that had a primary focus on advocacy for rights of people, um, women, LGBTQ people, um, and the pro-choice movement. And so we thought raise heck reflected our activism very well. There's a third layer to it that interfaces with software. So you've probably heard, Alex, about new technology that is a disruptor in the marketplace that just changes the whole game and makes things possible in a new or different way. And so we thought that Raise Heck also implied disruption of the status quo when it comes to software. And so since the technology landscape uh, for nonprofits has been changing so rapidly. We want Raise Hack to be at the forefront helping nonprofits to navigate that disruption. I love the layers. And I didn't even notice the, the last name, the combination of your last names. That's very, very clever, actually. <laughs> what is it about progressive causes that appeals to you so much? Well, it's at the core of both Charlotte's and my personal and political values. Um, the word progressive contains within it progress and progress for change. So many countries in the United States where both of us live, we're still making progress toward equality and opportunity for all. And we think about this in terms of social equality and economic equality. Uh, We view it through the lens of equal rights and equal opportunity and equity for 
everyone. It's not a level playing field here in the States, um, but progressive organizations are working to make it more equitable. And it was really, it was just about a hundred years ago that um, women in the States were granted the right to vote by the 19th amendment. And, you know, that's, um, that's not really a long time. And I have three kids, all three of my kids were born um, before marriage equality was the law of the land here in the United States. So um, one day, you know, my wife and I, we had three kids, but we were not viewed as legally married in the eyes of the U.S. government. And then after the Supreme Court decision in 2015, um, all of a sudden we were. We had actually been married in Canada a few years earlier, but our marriage hadn't been recognized. So anyway, like that's what progressive means to us, like better, equal opportunity, equality, political equality, um, you know, just for our, for people, you know, who are trying to like have a good life here uh, in the country. And, you know, not everybody has the same opportunities. It's a wonderful mission. Uh, I, I, I love the idea of too of progress, like you said, uh, the word progress in the word progressive, that it's moving forward. It, it's looking for a better future. Um, so in terms of race heck then, what kind of services do you offer? You kind of alluded to it before, but I'm curious to know a bit more about, like, is it a, is it a discovery process that you offer a various suite of services? You know, what are the high level services that race heck offers? Yeah, we, we have a primary service and it's technology assessment for nonprofits to help them choose uh, the right CRM and digital engagement software. So that's primarily what we do. We'll work with an organization to, you know, if they if they think maybe they need a new CRM, we'll work with them to figure out, well, yeah, you do, or maybe actually you don't. You just need to use what you have better. So that's uh that's our primary focus. We also <laughs> sometimes we help them if they've chosen a new solution, we help them implement, onboard, and adopt their staff. Um, we make sure that, you know, we get, make good recommendations for any staffing structure and change management as well. So not for every single project, but sometimes we do that uh, if they want to work with us and if it's a good fit. And then Charlotte and I both have a digital marketing background, um, advocacy and fundraising. So sometimes we provide some specialty digital marketing services like strategy, uh, email deliverability, and uh, sustainer assessments. When you typically start working with a nonprofit, do they normally have a CRM already? They're trying to look to or see if it's worth moving to a secondary CRM or a new CRM, or is it typically they're starting relatively new and they haven't yet decided which CRM they should choose as a first round of uh, choices? Good question. It usually depends on the size of the nonprofit and how long they've been around. We tend to find that brand new nonprofits who have just been around for a year or two, um, sometimes they're working out of spreadsheets and sometimes they've chosen something as a starter level or introductory CRM. And then after they ha have a couple of years of experience under their belts, they, they might be finding that they're outgrowing whatever it is they're using. I'd say it's more common though for organizations who are established. Um, they've been around for a few years. They've become established. 
on a CRM and then they find for whatever reason, maybe they're outgrowing it or maybe it's just not the best fit for them anymore because technology has progressed, um, then we'll work with them to validate whether or not that's true. And if so, what might uh, serve them a little better. And what does that process look like? How do you guide nonprofits in, in determining uh, a selection or maybe proposing a number of CRMs and then helping them with the selection process? That's a good question. So our process, our company is just the two of us. So we work really closely and personally with all of our clients. And before we even get into talking about technology at all, we have a discovery process where we just talk about them, their organization size and their programs. We ask them, you know, how are they raising their money? Who do they have on staff and what are their skills? What is their budget? We get a really clear picture of all the non-technical factors that can help determine what CRMs might be a good fit. And only after we know those basics, we talk about their technical requirements and needs and what they see coming up over the horizon in a few years for growth. We also talk like, what does your existing tech stack look like? What's the IT department using? And then at that point, only after we get all those basics, then we go and see what the best matches are for software or a CRM based on everything that we've learned. So two-thirds, I'd say, of the process is learning about the nonprofit and their operations before we even consider a list of what might help them best. Before a nonprofit starts to work with you, is there um do you require a certain certain prerequisite or a list of prerequisites to be able to help them? Like if they're still fumbling around, for example, in the dark, uh, looking for that light switch, is is there something that you can tell them to say, look, you need to have this in place before we can start working together or you start from from ground zero, so to speak, to just say, okay, let's figure out how to get you guys going and, and work through the process from, from day one. We could do either of them. Um, if an organization really feels like they don't know where to start, then we can start with them from the ground up. Sometimes organizations have already done a lot of research and they're just looking for additional expertise to help validate their findings. Um, so either one is fine. I'd say for us though, um, in order to make sure that the, the consulting that we give to them is of value, then we wanna make sure that it is unbiased and that we're not just providing uh, a rubber stamp confirmation to them. So we do like to spend time digging in to their organization and what their people say. I wouldn't call it um, a prerequisite in terms of like that we wouldn't work with them. Our only prerequisite really is that organizations are progressive and that they're they're in alignment with our, our values. I think though, um, you know, obviously when you're working with any new client, budget is part of it too. Like they need to have an idea of how much they can spend on software um, so they don't go down a rabbit hole talking to companies that they just simply cannot afford. So that's something that we'll talk with them about early on during the discovery process. So I imagine there must be a lot of change management. And I must imagine that one of the requirements is the the readiness to change. Like I imagine there might be some 
organizations where you know high level individuals um, are ready for the change. They're, they really want to drive that you know, top down approach. Where there might be some in the reverse as well. Like, do you, in terms of the non functional requirements, as they're called, do you look for organizations that are just you know eager to change? It certainly makes the project go a lot better if the organizations are eager to change and if everybody is on board. We have seen technology projects fail. They've been stalled or they've been completely abandoned if there's too much resistance from the people that have to make the change and then use the new software. And so a top-down approach only very rarely ends up with happy staff and a CRM that is widely used. Change management has to be part of the foundation of any software migration or change. Otherwise, um, it's going to be a tough road ahead. Yeah, I find it's the the most difficult uh, challenge to overcome, uh, just getting everybody on board. Do you have um, any tips for organizations who are, you know, they think that they're ready, but they're not quite ready like I'll give you um, the one that I know most of or most commonly used is making sure we have at least a couple of champions, people who are maybe mid-level in the organization who can really be a cheerleader, be a, be a champion to rah-rah the troops and get people on board. Because obviously coming from an outside uh, consultancy, the, the connection is not as strong as someone who from inside promoting this. Do you find that is a, aside from that, well, you can maybe validate that point, but is there any other ways to to get people to be prepared for that change? I think for sure. Um, in addition, I think I want to validate what you said about champions. So the people who are either directly using the software or in charge of the program for it, who are also going to learn it, like being the internal cheerleaders is really important. Um, they can help other people and they can also keep the momentum and enthusiasm alive. I'd say equally as important is leadership at the organization. So these often are people who have made the buying decisions or signed the contract. And when we say leadership is really important, it doesn't mean that the executive has to learn how to use the software, but they do need to understand that the staff is going through um, a project that's really demanding and takes a lot of time and a lot of headspace while they're still doing their jobs. So the executive, what they can do is set the tone for the organization that this is important and we're doing it and you're going to have help. And they can also procure that outside help from a consultant um, or they can hire additional temporary staff to help take some of the load of the day-to-day off the people who are going to be involved in the project. I will say, too, in the middle of any big project like this, enthusiasm kind of flags. And so that's where leadership can come in and help everyone find the internal strength and motivation to take the project over the finish line. If leadership just kind of listens to uh, objections and blockers from staff who don't have a champion and maybe also don't sense that leadership is committed to the project, that's one of the things that can derail the full adoption of new software. Yeah, you touched upon a great point, actually, is 
sometimes organizations forget the fact that they have a day-to-day operation uh, and sometimes they're barely you know able to keep up with the demand that they're you know, they're they're working really hard in, in doing their mission and now here comes a new CRM and new consultancy to help obviously get to the next step but they have to now create new time or more time to be able to help people like us to help them and build this CRM so it's it's actually adding a lot more work so I can imagine how motivation and enthusiasm can start taking a bit of a, a dip. <laughs> For sure. We've seen some staff burn out and quit um, at the end of a project if it's been poorly change managed. Um, and that can be a real blow to the momentum of the project too. Especially if it's a, someone who's, you know, Usually, when you work with smaller nonprofits, there's every every person counts, right? Every everyone has multiple hats, and losing one person can make sometimes a big impact or have a big impact on the organization. That's right. So, when choosing a CRM, then let's say at the high level, what are the main factors that are involved? Let's let's imagine we'll kind of break it down into organizations that are choosing a CRM for the first time, and then organizations that already have a CRM and moving to a new one. But let's start just before that in. In, in kind of making that selection of saying, you know, here are a bunch of CRMs available to you as a nonprofit. You know, what are the most important factors to consider in order to be able to narrow down the choices from all the possible choices to maybe a handful? That's a good question. So you had mentioned before non-functional requirements. And so the cognate of functional requirements, you know, or what we sometimes call the technical requirements. We consider these a given, and in some ways, that's the easiest part of evaluating technology. You have a list or a matrix of what your requirements are, and you match them up to other software to see how well that software can fulfill your requirements. Make sure it's a good fit for your existing programs and your growth plans. All of that, I'd say, is a given when it comes to functional requirements, but I I really think that non-functional requirements, um, you know, these intangible factors are equally as important. And it takes a little bit of, it's like both a, an art and a science of determining it. So some of the things that I think about are, what's the user experience like for the administrators? Is it easy to use? Is it easy to learn? Is it easy and straightforward to enter data into and just underneath it all, is it fun to use? Like a lot of us love to use apps and software where the experience uh, makes us feel good. And it this can be true for nonprofit software too. Like entering data or getting segments out um, can be fun and rewarding if it's easy to do and pleasant to look at. And we all know systems where it's really hard to do any of those things. So I think user experience is super duper important. The other two things though are about the company itself. So what is the the company behind the product? Like what is the roadmap looking like? Does the company release new features a lot? Do they fix bugs quickly and how often? I think we've learned in the last two decades that technology changes so quickly even if you have an amazing product today, if you don't keep improving it, it'll quickly become obsolete. So you've got to keep up. And partnering with that is the ecosystem that supports the product. Is there a robust partner community that 
are certified on the solution and they want to help nonprofits use that product well, you know, or are there, is there really like not much help if uh, from either the company's services team or from partners? So I think those two things about the company and the ecosystem are important just as equally as well as like, what is it like to actually use this software day to day? You recently released a guide, Types of Nonprofit Software Guide. And in there, you list three categories of, of CRMs, a small, a medium, and large. Could you help define, I don't want to give away the, the secret of the, the guide, I recommend everyone download it, but just at a high level, you know, how do you determine what is a small, what is a medium, and what is a large CRM? The CRM size is more of a continuum, especially at the small to medium range. Um, and large CRMs are things in and of themselves. So putting that out there first, um, small CRMs we think of as for the smallest organizations that are maybe starting out, maybe they have an Excel spreadsheet and they're ready for some software. So there are characteristics of them that a lot of them have a free or introductory tier that nonprofits can access them at. And they have mostly self-service. Like you can just log onto the website and buy it. You don't actually have to talk to a salesperson. And then it's kind of up to you to onboard yourself and read their support and onboarding materials to learn how to import your data. And they're usually made for smaller list sizes. If the list size gets too big, um, they're not always a good fit, either because of performance or features. So the continuum and the overlap with medium CRMs, you know, they kind of like blend into each other, but medium CRMs are the next step up. They might have more features than just a small CRM, and they can handle slightly larger list sizes. Staff size of your nonprofit is also something you know, to consider. A small CRM might be ideal for if you just have under five staff people, but medium CRMs, you could use them if you're, if your staff is like maybe up to, I don't know, 40 people. It depends on your programs too. But the large CRM is a wholly different piece of software. They're usually built for complex segmentation needs, large lists. Many of them support direct marketing programs and they often, not always, but often can require partners or services to help implement them because they are a lot more complex. Some organizations using large CRMs for enterprise direct marketing have millions of records and it's a a very, it's a very powerful piece of software. Would you say there's a correlation, a one-to-one correlation between the size of the CRM and the size of the nonprofit? Or have you seen large nonprofits use small CRMs Well, we've definitely seen everything you just described, Alex, like some larger nonprofits might, because of legacy reasons, be using a small CRM or a medium CRM. Sometimes that's when they come to us because they feel like they've outgrown what they're using and they want some help finding the right thing for them. And then conversely, we have sometimes seen organizations that are really small using a piece of software that we would classify as a large CRM. And it's just too much for them. Um, It's possible that they uh, found a way to afford it or that they were sponsored to use it by a partner organization, but it's just too much software for their small staff to learn. And then sometimes, uh, you know, not as often, but sometimes they, 
they come to a consulting company like ours to help find something that's more appropriate to their needs. Yeah, because I guess there's a natural assumption that um, there's a one way forward only of going from a small to a medium, medium to a large. But what you're saying is that sometimes it's the opposite direction as well, based on the capacity and the the technical know-how, I guess, of the nonprofit. That's right. So when choosing a CRM for the first time, let's imagine a scenario nonprofit, you know, is on the verge of blowing up their Excel sheets with uh, with lists mm-hmm. and they, they they wrap their head around the fact that they probably need a CRM. Uh, what are some of the best practices uh, that are involved in helping them get to that point of, of taking that leap from a, an Excel sheet or a notepad to a new, brand new CRM? Well, great question, because that's where we get into, I think, the bread and butter of really good change management and being thoughtful about your staff and your people. So technology is great. I love technology, but really it is all about people because it's the people who are going to be using this brand new CRM and they're used to using maybe a spreadsheet or something else. So I'd say... A friend of mine said, you know, the best CRM is the one that everybody uses. So get everyone using it. In some cases, it doesn't even matter what it is, as long as you're putting all of your data in there. So part of your change management, as you onboard your staff into this new CRM, is going to be not just training them, but also building the habits of using it every day. If it's not in the database, then it didn't happen. We hear that a lot at nonprofits. I think specifically, it is important to go slow and allow staff to learn. Don't try to do everything um, at the speed of light. Instead, like focus on learning the basics and executing on them well. And then gradually, if you can, bring additional departments on board to the new software and bring them up to speed. If you can do this kind of phased approach, then what you're doing is gradually building a bench of people at the organization who know how to use the new software and who can help their colleagues do it. So I think that's our advice. It really does go all back to evaluating your people and then building out a change management and training plan that's mutually supportive and allows for them to to learn while still doing their jobs and uh, not overloading any one person as best you can. I guess the flip side of that then, are there, or what are the common mistakes or mistakes that we should definitely avoid when moving to a brand new CRM? I do think there's something to be said about um, reading the manual. So when I was in graduate school for biology, Uh, I worked in a lab and I asked the professor, you know, a lot of questions, especially at first. And some of them were really basic. And he was a new guy and he was working on grants. And, uh, you know, I was just um, one of many people who was constantly interrupting him. So uh, he gently told me that there was a manual that answered most of my questions. And once I got in the habit of reading it, um, I helped kind of train myself. And that's the same with software. There's documentation and training available on demand for every piece of software. And so anybody who thinks that they have used a previous system and can just figure it out on the fly 
is doomed like to making an expensive mistake. If you don't know how to use your system, you run the risk of possibly messing up your data. And sometimes if you do something that is irreversible, then it can be an expensive mistake because you've got to pay a, a database administrator to fix whatever it is you've done. So I think like a mistake is just people not paying attention to training and availing themselves of the resources that are available to them. And that also goes back to change management and leadership, because I think the expectation that people need to pay attention um, and build out time for themselves to learn, um, if that's not in place, then people will feel free to multitask on webinars. And then once they go live and all of their helpful consultants are gone, they might find themselves in a position where they they didn't learn it, and now they're making mistakes. I wouldn't be surprised to hear that everything you mentioned on both the best practices and the mistakes are also found when moving from an existing CRM to a newer CRM. But is there any other significant difference between uh, starting a new CRM from scratch and then moving from CRM to CRM? In some ways, starting from scratch might actually be easier because you don't have a previous system to unlearn and your brain doesn't have shortcuts for how you used to do things. When you're migrating from a CRM to a CRM, you have habits from your old system and workarounds and you probably knew like all the tips and tricks. So I think that in some ways, how you set up your data in the new CRM is going to be instrumental in your new success on it. And in order to make decisions about data, I think it's important to actually learn how the new CRM functions um, before you decide where all the data is going. Every CRM has different uh, data tags or, or source coding structures. And so I think that learning the new system before you even use it will help you make better data migration decisions um, and will set your new system up, you'll be in a way better position to leverage it. Um, a lot of times we'll talk to organizations who have launched on a new CRM and we hear from them, if I knew then what I know now after using the system for you know six months, I would have made different decisions about, about how I imported the data and it would have been way more useful to me. So that's the learning I think is like, super important, but also unlearning. Um, you know, this is how we used to do it. Like, you know, it takes, that takes time as well. It almost sounds like it's, even though it's a bigger step technology-wise to go from an Excel or Notepad to a brand new CRM, it, it almost sounds like it's actually more challenging for, a, for an organization to move from a CRM to CRM because of that old way of doing things, that familiarity of doing things a certain way that now has to change. Do you find that's true? It can be true. Again, it depends on the people and their approach to learning and technology and also just how many people there are. Like I think going from a spreadsheet, you know, to to a piece of software can be equally as challenging, especially if the team is very small. But I, I definitely have seen over and over again sort of those entrenched patterns in people's brains of like, in this system, we did it this way. We can't do it this way in our new system, you know, and that must mean that the whole project was a waste of time. Um, and that can lead to some really uh, damaging resistance. Mm. So we've talked about CRMs quite a bit 
Are there any limitations to CRMs in the sense that, let's say, um, an organization comes to you with a problem, they believe it, you know, CRM will be the solution to their problem, or upgrading their CRM will be the solution to their problem. But after an assessment, you say, you know what, it's actually not your CRM, or we can work with your existing CRM. Uh, here's what you need to do to, to make it better. And therefore, we don't recommend you know anything more than that. Yeah, um, that's happened before. We did work with an organization, um, you know, that asked for us to help them assess, you know, should they get something new? And, you know, we did a project with them where we spoke to a lot of their stakeholders. And one of the results uh, that we arrived at was the software that you have actually can fulfill all the needs that you've outlined. Um, It's just that the people who are working there don't know how to use it uh, as well as they could. And also a lot of implementation decisions were made by previous people who had left the organization that maybe their process, you know, was either a mystery or incomplete. And so the organization wasn't set up for success, but they could have actually engaged in a project to re-implement and relearn the system that they had. Sometimes that is the answer. You know, and people are usually the answer um, primarily over the technology. You actually um, created a spark. I've seen situations where, because uh, obviously I work on the larger side of the CRMs with Salesforce, and there are multiple variations and flavors of Salesforce. And one of the solutions I've seen is, for example, moving from one version of Salesforce to another. Uh, so you're still within the Salesforce ecosystem, but you're the system no longer works for you in the way that it was built and almost has to be rebuilt in the newer, more modern version. Does that happen with smaller and medium-sized CRMs? To my knowledge, I have not seen that happen with smaller and medium CRMs. They're usually um, one version. They don't have different versions floating around. And that's because they need to operate at scale and maintaining several different versions for different clients would impede their ability to operate at scale. But I am very familiar with what you just described with the Salesforce of organizations sort of needing to re-implement, you know, if if they're moving to a different version of Salesforce or a different managed package. It it can do so much that uh, sometimes it can be rebuilt very poorly. So that kind of need can have a lot of benefit, that kind of migration that can have a lot of benefit. In terms of then outside of a CRM, you mentioned digital marketing as well. So your typical, I imagine your typical integration with a CRM is also with some kind of mass marketing tool or some kind of other external tools that are beyond the scope of a CRM? That's right. And that's what you've described, like a complex and complete digital marketing solution. Um, ECRM, like electronic CRM, is sort of the... Uh, I would call it the legacy descriptor of systems like that, complex and complete digital marketing solutions. A lot of times, if you're if an organization, most nonprofits are using something like that. Something has to send the email, something has to collect the donations and host the sign-up forms and advocacy. So software companies that sell all of that as a, a suite of tools. That is like a digital marketing solution or ECRM. Organizations can also use individual tools that fulfill each of those functions individually. And so we call those sometimes point solutions. 
But making sure all that data is integrated with your primary CRM or your database of record is really important because people are doing so much online these days, not just with email, but also with social media and other and mobile messaging, texting, like so many different ways that you can interact with your supporters, that making sure all that data has a home and is reflected in the main CRM is really important. If I were just to reword it, so you're saying uh, a CRM is more for the in-house organization and the eCRM is more of a customer-facing or volunteer-facing or outward-facing type of interface? Yes. Um, Yes, and there are some products and companies that sell what they call like the full solution or a complete solution. So it's a combined CRM and digital engagement and marketing platform. And that type of setup is called all-in-one. Gotcha. Um, I think you've, this was a question I came up with, but I think you've kind of covered it. I wanted just to maybe add some color to it is just how have you noticed CRMs change over the last, you said 17 years you've been working in, in this space. So how have you seen overall CRMs change and their importance within organizations change? Well, that's a great question. I think back to the beginning of my nonprofit career in 1999, the organization I worked at, we did have, we called it a database. We didn't call it a CRM back then, but by and large, like software was something that organizations bought and and hosted at their, on a server um, in their office or somewhere, at least on premise. And sometimes the software came on a disk uh, or a CD-ROM, and then the IT person would install it. And I think the change that we've seen has been twofold. So cloud software has just exploded over the last 20-some years. And so that's been a big thing. Like, no longer do you have to purchase a server and do your own upgrades but you can just access your software through your web browser. And this is true even for large CRMs. The second piece is just the uh, incredible, I think, proliferation of not just laptop computers, but also phones and tablets and mobile devices where people can interact with each other and um, by consequence, like with for-profit companies and nonprofits, there is so much data that has become available publicly and also to nonprofits if they find ways to engage with their supporters, that they have so much more ability now to crunch the numbers and slice and dice and come up with segments about their donors and supporters. It's just like there's a lot of data available. How do we help nonprofits make sense of it all and actually find tools that help them get insights and leverage that data effectively. I was reading an article the other day talking about we have so much access to so much information that the key these days is not consuming all this information, but just kind of aggregating it, trying to find ways to to um, simplify and digest it in a in an easy way, uh, because otherwise you're going to get overwhelmed. So it, it kind of sounds uh, similar. In terms of like the more recent years, in terms of COVID and whatnot, have you noticed any kind of shifts or any major changes in the in the CRM space because of the uh, pandemic? For sure, uh, I think COVID was a game changer for a lot of nonprofits. The ones that 
you know, managed to stay afloat during the pandemic uh, and continue receiving donations. One of the biggest changes I saw, especially to grassroots organizations that relied heavily on in-person events, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't responsibly do events for, you know, a year, a year and a half. And even now, I think there's been a gradual return to in-person fundraising. I think no nonprofit wants to, you know, show up in the newspaper as a, a super spreader event. And so virtual event management software, I think we've all probably been to Zoom meetings or conferences where it was a painful experience. I have also been to some events that were really fun that were managed virtually as nonprofits and companies got better at doing this over the last couple of years. And so I think that, you know, that's a major change that I've seen. I think there will always remain a place for people to be able to interact virtually with the mission of a nonprofit, even when it comes to in-person events. There, you know, there may be, I think in-person events are really fun, but the incredible reach that everyone being forced to kind of go virtual um, has opened up a lot of opportunity for nonprofits. Yeah, I agree. This this kind of hybrid model, I think, I hope it lasts to, to give the option. You know, if you want to come in person, shake our hand, we're, we're here for you. And if you want to you know, reach us or uh, get in touch with us from a distance, you have that option as well. So I think that's, I hope that sticks around. Me too. I'm curious to know then what is in your short-term future for you yourself and for Ray's Heck? Well, my short-term future, uh, I uh, personally, I'm just uh, looking forward. We have, my kids have two more weeks of school, so it'll be fun to be able to spend more time with them this summer. And we may even get to travel to visit family a little more as long as we can do it safely this summer. I'd say for Ray's Heck, we intend to keep doing what we're doing. In September, it'll be our three-year anniversary. And we want to continue to get better at our core services that we're delivering. We want to keep our services very personal. Um, And so, you know, we anticipate doing that. We also just want to maintain good work-life balance. Both Charlotte and I have young families. And so, the um, the way that we want to be present as parents and as for our families is really important to us. I'd say uh, also, Alex, you mentioned our guide to types of nonprofit software. We do intend to publish a follow-up where we named the categories of nonprofit software. And we'd like to be able to be a little more specific. Like here are some names of software companies and how they fit into each category. And uh, that's something that we'll be working on this year and hopefully we'll have ready for a follow-up publication in 2023. Yeah, this the first guide uh, was a great intro to, you know, the concepts of CRM, trying to put certain pieces in your mind uh, to see the, how they fit together. So I'm looking forward to that second guide as well. Listen, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find more about you online? Well, if you go to our website at raiseheck.com. That's R-A-I-S-E-H-E-C-K.com. That's our our home on the internet. We have links to all of our presence on LinkedIn and, you know, any other social media. Love it if you joined our email list. We try to send out fun 
content that's useful and let you know when we're having events or, you know, doing other neat things. Sally, thank you so much for joining me today. Alex, thanks for inviting me. It was such a pleasure. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again next time for Agents of Nonprofit.